Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. The Bible reading is taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who are falling asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who are falling asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Taiwo. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Nice to see us all. Nice to see us all. You know, as they used to say, if that one is for, if that one is for you, it's okay. I expect that one to be for you. The one for Jesus should be highest, but my own should be higher than that. Also, also. Now, it's nice to be back. We've been here. My wife and I were away for a while. And honestly, I mean, we still caught up with the service online. We were going to church in a place where the time zone was ahead of us. And you really, basically, once we just finished church, they would just come back and watch the service online. So we're doing two services, basically. But honestly, there's, there's nothing like being at City Church, I, honestly. And so we're reminded by that, of that just even with the worship uh, that we had earlier uh, today. So... Uh, Again, thank you all, and uh, God bless you. If you are worshiping with us for the first time, so happy that you joined. I don't know why you came. We are just very happy that you came. <laughs> and we hope that uh, the, the service will be a blessing to you. And for those who are watching online as well, thanks for clicking and joining us as well. My name is Femi, as um, Kemi already introduced. And I want to take us through a very important word um, today, very important word. It's not the typical word that we have, but still it is from the word of the Lord. And so I believe that it will be a blessing for you. Can we just pray? I'm tempted to sing, but I will not. <laughs> but I really do believe that the Spirit of God is here. I don't know how the songs were arranged, but I believe the Spirit of God is here. Just They're almost prophetically arranged, the three songs that we that we sang. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. 
my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is, even when we are in difficult circumstances, the Lord's name can be praised. And it's only people who are hopeful that can do that. The people who are hopeful that can do that are the people who are in his presence, Gashinan, Gamunan, knowing that he is here. And who is the one that is here? He is the one that is mighty. So Lord, we ask, this God that we have sung about, tabernacle with us right now. Let your presence, O God, fill this atmosphere. Let your presence, O God, fill our hearts. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you so that when you are here in your presence, through your might, you will be able to encourage those, O God, who are hopeless so that they will be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord in any circumstance they find themselves. Do this for us, O God, this morning. That is, if there is anyone who has walked in here, O God, hopeless, because of the grief in their heart, Father, let them live enlightened and encouraged in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, O Lord God, for we expect that you will do mighty things in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. About 10 years ago, my cousin died of multiple sclerosis. He was living in Manchester, just as I was. And when I got the news, it was really sad, but the first thing that came to me was to go and visit his mom. You see, he'd been suffering with that illness for about six years before that, and his mom had to, a lady who had retired, had to move back to England to go and take care of him. She had not been in England, lived in England since the 1960s. But she had to go back. Why? Because as his condition started, his wife, well, if I can't remember how many years, decided to leave him. She, took, uh, she couldn't, she went off with somebody else and she took the kids. And so he was alone. And so it was a devastating thing because she had hoped, she had cared for, but was looking forward to his healing. So I decided to go and see her. And typically, she was part of a church and she knew a lot of people. And so Christians were gathered in the place. And everybody was just trying to, you know, well, just looking a bit sad and everything until, and you knew this was coming because my aunt was sobbing. And my aunt is a very strong woman. This is the first time I've ever seen her sob. And once she started sobbing, you know this is coming. Somebody decides they have to speak. And this person spoke and said, because, you know, we don't know what to say. You just feel like you have to say something. And I said, Mama, don't cry now. Don't cry. Dapo won't want you to cry. That was my cousin that died. That we will want you to cry, don't cry. Now, leaving aside the very good intentions of the person, we acknowledge that. There's a huge presumption that was in that statement. First of all, the presumption that they knew exactly what the dead son would want. And on the basis of that presumption, they then asked her to do something that was deeply inhuman, which is what? Do not cry. So what was meant to be a word of encouragement became a word of discouragement. The truth is, Christians, God bless us, you know, we are filled with the Spirit of God, we love Jesus, but many times our good intentions always come out badly. We are terrible at encouraging people. And the reason why her encouragement was so bad, you know why? It wasn't just the hurt that he felt. The hurt was a result. 
that she would feel. It was because her encouragement, the person's encouragement was not rooted in biblical truth. God never tells us to stop crying where we are meant to cry. The same Paul that wrote these words that we just said, said, Paul said, there was a guy called Epaphroditus who was very ill. And he said, God spared me by healing Epaphroditus because he was so ill he would have died. He said, but God spared me sorrow upon sorrow. So he did not die. It wasn't rooted in truth. Many times we misuse the word of God even though we have good intentions and we don't encourage well. Speaking about misusing the word of God, this is a text that has been often misused. Because it reminds me of, um, I know it doesn't remind me, I was about to say in the 70s and 80s, it obviously doesn't remind me about the 70s. <laughs> there are a few people here that will be reminded about. But in the 70s and the 80s, in the Christian world, the big thing in the Christian world was a big word called eschatology. Turn to your neighbor and say eschatology. What does eschatology mean? It is basically a study of the end times, the things that will happen at the end. A lot of people were absolutely convinced that Jesus was coming back very soon. And in fact, we will not make it to the year 2000. Right? And we'll say a little bit about that next week. Please, mark your date in the calendar, because I'm going to tell you when Jesus is coming back next week. <laughs> the confirmed had already asked me. So, now... They were very sure. And because of that, you know, a lot of people were talking about the word, the rapture. And they were talking about how we should prepare. And you ask, what is the rapture? Well, the rapture was the teaching that just before things really get bad, that you guys think things are bad now. It said things are going to get so bad, it was called the tribulation. So just before the tribulation, God is not going to allow the church to go through that. If you are a believer in Christ, he was going, Jesus was going to come and take us to heaven whilst the tribulation happens. Now, some people said, no, it's before. Some people said, no, it's after the tribulation. Some people said, it's in between the tribulation. But the point was that we are going to get snatched away into heaven and we'll be with God there forever so that we won't suffer like the rest of mankind. Now, this thing was very intriguing such that it started to fuel the imaginations of a lot of people. It was where Christian eschatology then met with, I don't know, creative, imaginative thinking. So that books were being released, but there was none more famous than a series of books from the 90s, from 1995, 2007. You know where I'm going. It was by a guy called Tim Lahai and Jerry Jenkins. It was called the Left Behind series. Look at that. Even the color itself, you know, you, you sort of want to buy it. Some of you still have, where's Faye? I know Faye read everything. Where's Faye? Faye, Faye is over there. You have not left. But it wasn't just the writings. In fact, it started to fuel the wonderful industry of Christian films. And a lot of it was based on that. You know, the rapture, if it's the rapture, then you, who is going to be left behind? The number of, of some of the names of those films were one, left behind. Okay. Good old camera. Or, you know, if you are left behind, how about the remaining? I hold that one. Or, what about, very simply, the rapture or rapture? See, they went up. And here's another thing. 
I remember two of them. This one was a sequel. Uh, a sequel. It was called Apocalypse. Apocalypse 1, Apocalypse 2. Apocalypse 1 was caught uh, in, the, in the eye of the storm. Apocalypse 2 was revelation, simply that. And the thing was, the plot lines were just... They were really bad. <laughs> let, me read, let me read the plot line for both Apocalypse 1 and Apocalypse 2. Apocalypse 1. Two newscasters named Helen and Bronson are left behind on earth after the rapture happens and are forced to cover world events as a global war involving Israel and the Antichrist figure who leads the EU seizes power. Turn to your neighbor and say, Bagown. <laughs> but that one wasn't enough, so you had to go to the sequel. And what was the sequel? In this sequel to the apocalypse, caught of the apocalypse caught in the eye of the storm, the focus shifts away from the two newscasters stranded in the post-rapture mess and towards now a police officer who has joined an underground Christian resistance movement. You can't make this up. Right? Christian movement known as the, wait for it, the haters. <laughs> Tell your neighbor, are you a hater? <laughs> right? The haters who must fight Satan's army against overwhelming odds. This is where spiritual warfare started. We're an underground resistance movement. Some, somebody's getting it. Now, what did you notice? Let me tell you, when you look at the titles of the movies, when you look at the pictures that you saw there, when you look at the plot lines, they are giving you two basic emotions or feeling. One is fear. Did you see plane crashes all around? Did you see the red lights? Even the one that wasn't red, that was blue, the, the remaining it looked like a hurricane or a tsunami. Everything about it was fear, fear, fear. The second one is confusion. Because things became so complex, right? People were just put, mixing Zechariah plus Ezekiel plus Revelation. You just like, oh, I don't know. Seven years? Is it seven years? Thirty-three years? But Israel in 1948? But where everything put together? Like, what is going on? I am confused and I am fearful. Double Allah for dead body. And when you mix confusion and fear together, when people started to talk about things of the end times from the 2000 going forward, you know what, what they were met with? Disinterest. And so it is, whenever one talk about anything about the end times, people are disinterested. It becomes a barrier. And I want to tell you why there is a barrier. It's because of what Paul said in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I pray that this morning you will not be uninformed. And that the truths that God has brought in this scripture and even the teaching of the end times, you will see that you can understand it. You will actually be able to understand it. But as verse 18 says, it is not for speculation. It is not for some kind of wide imagination. It is for us to be encouraged. And so, Lord God, we pray for enlightenment that brings encouragement. Because after that lady spoke and told my aunt not to cry, and she was crying and still, the whole thing, there was just tension in the atmosphere. I got up and I read from this passage. And I told her, you can be encouraged. Because this is not the end of it. So the mistake a lot of people made was that they used the end times to bring fear into people's hearts. But the truth was that any study of the end times towards Christians that does not bring hope means that we have twisted the word of God. May the Lord bring hope to us this morning. 
for anyone that is grieving, for anyone that is grieving in a way that there is no hope. The Lord will bring hope to you in Jesus' name. So, we are going to look at this passage. Hopefully, it will bring enlightenment. Hopefully, it will bring anticipation for the coming of the Lord. We are going to look at it under three headings. All filled with hope. Hopeful, cons- hopeful consolation. Hopeful conclusion. And hopeful community. Hopeful consolation. Hopeful conclusion. And hopeful community. So let's go with the first one. Let's start. Hopeful consolation. Now, as we're getting towards the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that happens, and you see this from verse 9 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 11 of chapter 5, Paul is addressing three things that were brought to him. And so, for instance, in 4 verse 9 and 5, 11, and 5 verse 1, this is what he says. He says, now about your love, now about, oh, that means they were writing to him. He says, so now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. He was addressing the love for one another. And that means showed us that masterfully last week on how we can use our work as a way of loving. Now, next week, right, he now looks at verse, uh, uh, 5 verse 1. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. So as I said, next week, we'll talk about times and dates. But this week, he was addressing something in verse 13. What is he addressing? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about what? About those who sleep in death. Paul was addressing People who had died that were part of the Thessalonian church. Now, it wasn't just because they had died. It was because they were being uninformed about their death. There was an understanding about their death and the implications of that that was, was not right. And the implication, verse 13, uh, verse 13 again, is what? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. How do the rest of mankind grieve? They have no hope. So Paul is writing to them because there was a situation where because of their lack of understanding, there was now introduced what we can call hopeless grief into their lives. Hopeless what? Grief. Say hopeless grief. Many of us have grieved about things before. But there is a kind of grief that is hopeless. You see, if you've lost your job, you can grieve. If you've lost some money, you can grieve. But can I say with due respect, there is nothing that compares to losing a loved one. The grief that comes from that is excruciating. And some of us know that. Probably we've lost our fathers or our mothers or our siblings or our friends or our spouses. He says it is a grief without hope. You know what that means? It means when the person is grieving and they look towards the end, at the end, they see no hope. In other words, it becomes an endless grief because the hope that helps to stop the grief does not exist. It's a bottomless grief. And that is when grief moves from grieving about an an incident to now just grieving about life in general. Have you ever not met people who, 
It's like they have a perpetual sadness on their face. The face has already been formed in a way that is just sad. There's some people that you see them, they have a perpetual frown. They're angry about life. But there's some people where their face is just totally, the Bible calls it downcast. It's because they grieve without any hope inside. They may enjoy things here and there, but they are always sad. They started to grieve about an incident, but that incident took over them because they felt there was no hope at the end. So it, the object of their grief moved from the incident to just life itself. And when we try to deal with it, and even the ancients, when they try to deal with this kind of thing, the first thing that comes is something called resignation. We just resign. There is no hope. This is what life is about. And so you move from seeing the meaninglessness of the incident to the meaninglessness of life. Here's what I mean. You, for instance, when you lose that loved one, people say something like, what is even, I mean, if they were going to die like this, why did they even exist? At one point, Job says, because it's the day that I was born, because of his suffering, because it's the day I was born, because it's the person that went to announce that a boy had been born. <laughs> you see, what is even the point? This person, what, it would have been better if this person didn't exist. And then you move from analyzing the meaninglessness of that person's existence, it would have been better if they didn't exist, to the meaninglessness of your own existence. Because you say, I would die one day too. In fact, there was an ancient Greek and Latin saying. It went something like this. It told us about the journey of human beings and the conclusion of how we interpret that journey. It went very, very short, very simple. It says, I was not, I am. I am not, I care not. Resignation. But the truth is that even when we resign to say this is what life is about, it doesn't help you cope with it. Because the problem remains there. Nobody just, or I don't say nobody, but most people don't want to have a perpetual sadness, that kind of perpetual grief. And so what we do is that we quickly move, most people quickly move to another way of dealing with it. Now this way of dealing with it is, the other one was more ancient, but this one is more contemporary. This one is a little bit more intellectual. How do people deal with it? It leads us to a contemporary, sophisticated, philosophical ideology. You know what it's called? Jackpaism. <laughs> you know heard of it? Jackpaism. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you a jackpaist? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the way we deal with it. No, no, I'm very serious. Like, have you ever, if you, it's, it, it works this way. So you're having a problem, you have a problem, the people, like everybody say mental health now, so you now decide to go and see a therapist. I hope you know that different therapists are steeped in different philosophical ideas, right? You can have Jung, you can have uh, Freud, you can have different people, and you can also have therapists that are jackpiced, a jackpiced therapist. So when you sit down on his chair, he asks you, he says something like this, oh, you don't like your job, no problem, there's a solution, jackpa. You don't like your marriage, no problem. There's a solution. Jackpot. You don't like your church, no problem. There's a solution. Jackpot. You don't like your country, no problem. There's a solution. Canada, uh, sorry, Jackpot. <laughs> you don't like your life. No problem, there's a solution. And this is how people commit suicide. 
And in the same way, sometimes we actually think, okay, I don't want to take my life. But honestly, this world is a, such a terrible place. I don't like this world. No problem. There's a solution. Christians have that solution. Jackpa, it's called the rapture. Because when people read verses 15 to 17, where it says the Lord will descend, and then we will go and meet the Lord, where we understand it, when you use a Jackpa's lens to read it, it's like this world is so bad, so bad, we just have to endure. But don't worry, hold on. Because before things get to their utmost worst, Jesus is coming down, and Jesus is going to do what for us? He's going to take us. You know Jesus jackpot first. You understand, right? Yeah, he died, rose again, but he was like, guys, I'll see you. But I'll come back, and we'll jackpot together. Come on. You see? <laughs> Thank you, Yobo. You see, at the heart of the rapture doctrine is really this, that our final hope is in escaping. See, at the heart of what I call Jackpaism is that the solution to every problem is to escape. Jackpaism, escapism. But you know that escaping your problems has never solved the problem. In fact, it, it refuses to acknowledge problems. Here's the thing. What resignation and escapism have in, in common is this. They recognize there's a problem, but they believe there is no solution to a problem. Another form of escapism is what we do to people who are grieving. Like what they did to my aunt. When they said, don't cry. Don't cry means it's a form of positivism. That's a third way we deal with it, right? Positive confession. Now, positive confession, the problem with positive confession is this. It says, there is no problem. So he refuses to acknowledge the problem. The way you escape the problem is behave like though there is no problem there. But that doesn't, it doesn't remove the problem. In fact, it compounds the effect of the problem. We suppress it and eventually it works out in trauma, in different kinds of mental illnesses and all of those things. This is not how we deal with the problem. What do we need? We need hope. Because where fear is a stimulant, hope is fear is a depressant, hope is a stimulant. What does hope mean? Hope is this. There is a solution. And unlike positivism, for hope to say there is a solution, it means that there was a problem that we have a solution for. Are you getting what I'm saying? What hope does is that it doesn't recognize that there is no problem. In fact, it says there is a problem, but there is something at the end of this problem. And that is that you will come out. And our God is a God of hope. Why? Because God doesn't run away from the problem. God faces the problem. He goes towards the problem and he solves the problem. And if God is a God of hope, then we must be a people of hope. Amen. Amen. And you say, really? Are you serious? I'm telling you. Think about what Jesus said. Jesus, when he's thinking about his disciples, when he's thinking about us here, he recognizes there is a problem. But Jesus does not say that God take them out. In fact, let me show you a scripture you've probably not seen before or you've never seen in the same way. For those who say, ah, Jesus is coming to take us out of the world. John chapter 17. Give me John 17. Listen to what it says. Verse 14. I have given them your word. We'll come back to that. I have given them what? Your word. Now, for those who say, Jesus is saying that he's going to take us out of this bad world. Let's read verse 15 together. My prayer is not that you take them what? 
Tell your neighbor, don't be uninformed. He doesn't, he's not coming to take us out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, verse 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. And in verse 14, he says, I have given them what? Your word. So when you give them the word, you sanctify them by what? Verse 18. As you sent me into the world. Remember what we said. God does not go away from a problem. He goes towards it. So God saw that the world was in a mess. And God, the Father, sent God, the Son, who became a human being and did not run away from the problem. He came towards it. So he said, as you have sent me into the world, guess what? I am sending my own people also into the world. We are the called out ones, it's true. But we are not the jackpot ones. Right? We are the called out ones. We are called out of the world to be sent back into the world. Because we are people of hope. And so now back to the text. Look at what Paul says. Verse 14. Because what we need is the word of hope. So when Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, because if you are uninformed, it will lead to grief, uh, to, to hopeless grief. He says, but I have a profound word of truth for you. That what? We believe. What do we believe? Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Say it again. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. That is the word, the gospel word that sanctifies us. Why is it so important? Because Jesus was in heaven. And when Jesus looked down on earth, yes, the whole world was in a mess, but there was a bigger problem. The biggest problem that, the men, that human, humanity faced is the same thing that's making these people cry. Is what? Death. So Jesus did not say, Jesus would not say, he didn't have this heaven positivism. Ah! They are dying. No, they are not dying. I reject it. Yeah, that would make him stay. Jesus did not look and say, ah, they are dying. Ah, what am I going to do now? That's what, that's what life is. He wasn't resigned to it. And Jesus did not escape and say, oh no, I don't want to go near. What did Jesus do? He came into the world. He put on humanity. He died. And if you say, oh, he died. So he's just like us. No, he rose back from the dead. What did he do with that? He, de he, he defeated death. He showed death. I can come into your domain. And if I come into your domain, I can master you. That's why Romans chapter 6 says, because he died once to death, death has no mastery over him. Jesus is now Lord of the death. Amen. Amen. So he comes towards the problem. But then Jesus ascends. And then you say, yes, he defeated death. But he didn't destroy death. Death is still here. Yeah, but listen again. What do you think? The Jesus who saw death and when he saw death, he came to earth. He didn't stay in heaven. There's one more thing to be done with death. It is to destroy death. Can I ask you, what do you think Jesus would do? If the first time he came towards the problem, what do you think he's going to do the second time? He was also going to come. That's why Paul said in verse 16, for the Lord himself would not that he will ascend, the Lord himself will what? Descend. In talking about griefless hope, a hopeless grief, he will descend to destroy even death itself. Do you know that death will have suffered death? Have you never seen that? Open to Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11, this is what it says. At the final, at the end of time, uh, my person is not putting Revelation 20, 11. Okay. 
So there's something called Aha, there it is. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth, so it's the great white throne, the, uh, the judgment throne, this is at the end. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Then verse 15, verse 15, verse 15, verse 15. Anyone who, no, 14, 14. <laughs> then death and Hades, that is the grave. Then death and Hades were thrown into what? The lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. That is the death of death is the second death. Death itself is going to die. So Jesus has defeated death in his first coming, but when he descends now, he's showing us that he comes to solve the problem. He is coming at the final time to destroy death. More of that will be said, but I hope you can see that our God is a God of hope. He does not go away from the problem. He goes towards the problem, and so his people should not be a people that do not have hope. We don't have a Japanese God. We don't have a Japanese Savior. We don't have a Japanese eschatology. Therefore, you have no right to be a Japanese people. We are a people of hope. Amen. Amen. And this is the hopeful consolation that they get. That God has done something about it. So what has he done? That leads me to our second point. There is a hopeful conclusion. Somebody says, it, it seems like you are saying that if Jesus comes, he's not coming to rapture the church. Uh, uh, duh. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So if he's coming not to rapture the church, then what is he coming to do? Well, two things will happen when he comes to Christians. We'll receive a new nature and we'll receive a new role. A new nature and a new role. Let's quickly, this one we're going a little bit deep now into the stuff. Now I want you to understand in this text, there are two sets of people. Two sets of people, don't miss them. The first set of people, you can see them in verse 13. Those who sleep in death. Verse 14, those who are falling asleep in him. Verse 15, um, those who are falling asleep. Verse 16, uh, the dead in Christ. Can you see the first group? People who are, say it, people who are dead. But there's a second group of people. They are the we. Verse 15, look at it. It says we. Who are the we? The we who are still alive and are left. You can see that in verse 17 as well. We who are still alive and are left. So there are two categories of people that exist when Jesus returns. Are you following? One is those who are dead before Jesus returns. The other one is those who are alive when Jesus returns. Is this clear for now? Right? Okay, now. What Paul does in this text is to show us their relationship with one another. There's a relationship they have. Because part of why these people were sorrowful was like, this auntie that was so wonderful to me, she has died. What's going to happen to her? Am I going to have an advantage over her? So Paul then says, let me tell you something. We will not precede those who are falling asleep. That's verse 15. He said, we will certainly, we who are alive and remain, will not certainly precede them who are what? Asleep, who have died. Now, when you hear the word precede, right, a better way of saying is, is first. You know, so he says, I first you. Uh -huh. yeah. We don't always like to somebody to, be, to first us, although there are some things we do. You're like, you know, you're going for a party. You don't want to be the first to get there. Right? You want to, have you got, you now ask your friend, have you gotten there? Have you gotten there? It's not because you want them to get there first, then you now enter. 
Except when you dress well. But when you're not dressed well, that's when you, uh, you come in early and you leave early as well. But there are some other things we don't want people to precede us in. Like when there's latest gist. You don't like when you're the last person to hear now. You always want to hear, don't, all of you, there's a spirit of big boring in this church. Let's be honest. But God is delivering you, delivering us. We don't like somebody to face us. And so what Paul is addressing here is that these people are concerned like, ha, huh, what is going to happen? Are we going to have an advantage over these guys? He said, no. In fact, he said, we will not precede them. Now, the preceding is in relation to an event. You, you, you are first. You precede somebody in, in, in a queue. You precede somebody in, in purchasing something. You precede somebody in hearing Jesus first. So what is it that we will not precede those who are falling asleep in? Now, I want you to see what he says in verse 14 again. We, uh, verse uh, 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 16, he says, the dead in Christ will rise what? First. They will rise first. That's why in verse 14, even though there's a bit of a mistranslation there, he says, when he says, after uh, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, because we believe that Jesus will rise and uh, uh, died and rose again, we also believe. So it's meant to be something similar. Now, he says here, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Actually, the verb that is used there can either be bring or it can be take. It depends on whose vantage point. If it is to bring, that is if they were coming from heaven, from God's vantage point, he will bring with them. But a better translation shows that the reference point should not be from God in heaven, but from the grave. That he would take them in the same way he, Jesus died and rose again. These ones are dead. So in the same way, he will rise them as well. Are you following? If you don't believe me, let, let's, we'll, 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 we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15 now. But what he's saying is we will not precede them in the resurrection. I'm like, oh, okay. So these people are not disadvantaged. Ah, oh, that's good. Ah, oh, wait, wait, what's going to happen to us? You know, when you have to look after your friend, when your friend has got their own, you know, hey, what happened to me? Your friend has got married. Ah, I'm happy for my friend. When will I get married? I said, okay, now we, we won't precede them. So what is going to happen to those who are alive when Jesus returns? Now, I want us to quickly go to 1 Corinthians 15. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, it treats the same thing, but it is looking at it differently. You see, in 1 Corinthians 4, we are told what Christians will be when Jesus returns. Well, what Christians will do when Jesus returns. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are told what Christians will be when Jesus returns. Do we get it? So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see the similarities. If you compare 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, you see what it says. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16, you, can you see there's one thing called the trumpet call of God? There's a trumpet call. And after the trumpet call, it says the dead will, in Christ will rise first. Now look at verse 51 of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 52, sorry. It says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. Do you remember trumpet that was there? The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. So you can see we are talking about the same event. That 1 Thessalonians 4 is saying the same thing as 1, Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 15. Are we together? Okay. Now, what does it say about the dead? It says the dead will be raised, what? Imperishable. They will be raised, what? Imperishable. Now, it's not just that they will be raised imperishable. There was more that was said about them in 42, look at 42 to 44. It says, 
You sow, you know when you sell something, it's not the same thing that comes out, right? If you sow a seed, you get something else. And so he says the same thing about our natural nature now. He says about the bodies that we have now. He says if we sow the body perishable, that is you can be corrupted, you can get sick. What is sown in the resurrection, what is reaped in the resurrection is what? We will not be able to get sick. If you sow what? Dishonor, right? You will receive glory. That is if you are sown you will come out with beauty, all right? If you are sown with short hair, you will come out with long hair. If you are sown, you understand what I mean? All right. If you are sown with weakness, it will come out with power. If it was sown in natural body, it is going to be raised up a spiritual body. It's not that it will be spirits. A spiritual body will have matter, flesh, but that it is a body that is made by the Holy Spirit. And then later he now says that if it is sown mortal, it will be raised up immortal, for death shall be swallowed up in victory. That is the kind of body that the dead will rise with. But in verse 51, go back to 51 verse 52. 52 then says, they will be raised up, the dead will be raised up, and then he said, what happens to those who are alive? He now says some people will be changed. Who are the people that will be changed? Verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be what? Changed. So now you follow following. The two categories, this is what happens. If people are dead when Christ returns, they will resurrect. But those who are in Christ and have not died when Christ returns, what will happen to them? They will be what? Changed. They will have the same, they will experience the same glory and glorious body that the resurrected have come into. But we will not precede those who have died. Is this clear? And say, hey, how, how, how does this all happen? How, how does this happen? Because I'm sure this, uh, you know, when people are dead, they are dead, though. they can't hear anything, they can't do anything. <laughs> Although sometimes, even if you are deaf, you know when your mom calls you in a particular way? Is it, Ko! 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 Yes, ma! You know, there's a way you call somebody that even when they are deaf, they will hear somehow. <laughs> say, three things shall be shall happen. He said, when the Lord descends, he will come with a shout, a command. Jesus will order that they come. He says, he will come with the voice of the archangel. His chief messenger will cry it out. He said, there's a trumpet call of God that when it sounds, they have no choice but to come to life. I said, ah, are you sure? Why? Why you say that? Oh, thank you for asking. Listen, about the trumpets, it's not the trumpet that Nathaniel Bassett blows. You see, nowadays, trumpet is used for music. Back in those times, trumpet was used to announce an event. It was used for weddings. It was used for birthdays of important people. And it was even used for funerals. The fourth emperor, the fourth Roman emperor, a guy called Claudius, when he died, they said the trumpet was so loud. It was so loud that it was supposed that the dead in their graves, they heard the sound. The dead in the graves, they said they heard because the emperor had died. Are you seeing the irony there? After the trumpet had blown, the dead remained dead because the emperor was dead. But when the trumpet call of God comes, you know what happens? It is not an emperor that is dead. The emperor shall live forevermore. But those who are dead, the one who created their cells can say, come forth, and they will come forth. Because there is a divine collective action to make sure this thing happens. You see about the, the ordering of it. Jesus called. He said the Lord will descend with a command. Ah, see, have we seen this thing there before? Do you remember in John chapter 11? 
When Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, let me quickly show you something in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29. Don't be amazed, Jesus said this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, that is his own voice, and come out. Those who have done what is good, uh, I can't see now, this guy is blocking me. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. The voice of Jesus calling people from the grave is all they need. That means if Jesus did not specify Lazarus, when he said Lazarus, comfort, we would have had chaos. Why? Because all the graves, if Jesus just said comfort, all the people would have just started coming forth. I tell you this, guys, when the Lord will descend with his power, he shall speak and the dead will have no choice than to rise up from the dead. So we receive a new nature. But then the question becomes, what will we do? What will we do? You say a new role or a new task. Let me explain. Let me explain. Because there's a first, the first task that we do after we enter into this nature. is really important. But I have to first pick a grouse with someone or a group of people. Well, let me first say what he says. He says that we will be, after that, we who are still alive, and left, verse 17, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, first, look at that word, caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, when you think about the clouds, don't think about just the normal clouds. This can confuse us. But actually, these clouds are very prominent in Scripture. You see, when Jesus was ascending to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he said that he disappeared in a cloud. You say, hey, is it not just the cloud that's there? No. After that, every other place that you see Jesus is returning, he comes in a cloud. It is not the cloud. It's not just any cloud. It is the cloud of his glory. So in, Psalm, in, in, um, in uh, Mark chapter 16, Mark chapter 14, verse 62, when Jesus was before the mock trial, he said to them, he said, very soon, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. In Revelation 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he comes in a cloud. In Revelation 14, verse 14, it says, The Son of Man was riding on a white cloud. You know why? Because when God comes, he comes in a cloud. Psalm 104, verse 3 says, He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides upon the wings of the wind. So when he says we will be caught up together with him in the clouds, it means this Jesus is now returning. He's returning to finish his work. Are we following? It's not just atmospheric cloud. Then he says we'll meet the Lord together. With, uh, we'll, be, we'll meet him in the air. Well, he, most likely he's not just talking about the atmospheric air, but the devil is called the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the air. And so he's speaking spiritually that now Jesus has totally unseated the devil and he is now reigning and in dominion in the place that the devil reigns. Are we following? But then he says, we'll go and meet him. And when he says meet him, does he say, we'll meet him in the clouds to vanish to heaven? So what's going on? Yeah, so that brings me to, I said I'm going to pick a little bit of a graph with something that has been happening, I've noticed. Is really with these people they call MCs. You know MCs? You know MCs at weddings? Yeah? Or, okay, let's call them by their new name now because they want to feel funky. They say they're not MCs, they're compares. Compares. What are you comparing yourself with? You are confused. That's, where's Dami? You are there. Where's Fage? Uh-huh. They're comparing. 
And I've noticed, the reason why I'm not happy with them is I've noticed a trend in the last 15 years. They have departed, what is it? Uh, what, 15 years? It's not fair. All of you have been 15 years. No, it's not hard. 15 years recent. Ah, what joke? Stop it. We won't allow ageism in this, in this church. In the last 15 years, there's been a trend moving away. You see, I'm an Ijebun boy, which means that when I was growing up, I knew that when you did parties, there are certain protocols that you don't deviate from because that's what makes the party the party. But these guys now, because they are no longer MCs, they want to be compared, they start doing useless things. Useless things. I've seen now, now a lot of parties, we don't even have what you call high table again. No, no, no. You are talking about the problems in this world. I'm telling you what is part of the problem in this world. We don't have high table. So, 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 some of those that have been, look at me now. I'm a pastor now. This was my time to be going to the high table. Look at Dick Femi. He has worked all his life. He can't be chairman again. Do you understand? You know, Waka come in. So I was in one party in 2009, my friend's birthday. And so this uh, 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 compare, compare, that word annoys me. But this MC, you know, uh, you know, they'll now start speaking English. They're always looking fresh. They will wear, you know, blazer that is clean. They'll now wear tight pants like this. They'll now not wear socks. And they'll now be putting on shoes. And they'll be, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a nice time. We're going to give you a nice time. Like, which, which, what is this? You're MC like, you are a master of ceremony. So now you're just talking, talking, talking. So, okay, we, people have gotten used to it. That time, Thank God for the people that still had that party. There was a high table. But this point is only the parents. So he now saw the mother of the bride. He now said, the mother of the bride should come to the high table. Oh, God. Turn to your neighbor and say, children of nowadays. <laughs> he said, he trusted her. Oh, yeah, uh, mommy, please come and join us on the high table. So the woman was looking a bit confused. What's, 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 uh, What's going on? That's when one of our friends, God bless her, went to the boy. I said, no, bring the mic. Come. He said, that is not how it is done. He said, that's not how it is done, my friend. He said, you don't call her to go to the high table. She goes from the back, outside. <laughs> then people like her, her Abby, her friends, her sisters, her daughters, people like her, people of honor, people of dignity, they follow her from the outside and bring her to the, ice, to the high table. Give yourself a round of applause. That's the way it's meant to be. <laughs> and so you see people of like manner around them. You know why? Because no dignity comes in alone. They are ushered in. And so in the Roman times, when a governor or an emperor was coming into a city, they don't just allow him to come into the city. Those of noble birth will go outside because they are similar to him in nobility. They go outside to meet him and then they bring him in. If that can be done for a mother, if that can be done for an emperor, then when the Lord himself descends, the people that are resurrected like him, they will go out and they will usher him in. That is exactly what is going on here. For no dignitary comes in alone. They will rise like he has risen. They will change into his nature. And those of similar nature will go and meet the Lord where he is, where he has conquered in the air. And they'll say, eh hey. And then when they go and meet him, he'll now say, eh hey. Like Peter said, let's tabernacle here. Abi? When they go and meet him, what do they do? They, do they go and stay where he is? Oh, no. Ah. He'll say, eh hey. you have come to meet me. 
Now let us go to heaven. Do, when they go to meet him, do they, do, does he take them to where he is coming from? No, when they go to meet him, just like the women went to meet the, the mother of the bride, just like the nobles went to meet the emperor, what do they do? They don't go to where he is and remain there. They don't go to where he's coming from. Where do they go? They go to where they are coming from. The Lord will descend to the earth. Why? Because he is making the dwelling place of God and men where here on earth, not in heaven. You don't believe me? Look at Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. He says this, I saw a new heaven. This is the end of time. There was an old uh, heaven and an old earth. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1, right? And yet there was a fall. And God said this fall is going to destroy all things. So I saw what that the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And many people say that's our final dwelling place. Yes, it is. But the rapture tells you that we are going to be zapped to go and live in the holy city. What do you say about the holy city? I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, say it together, coming down. Why? Because the Lord comes down. Our dwelling place with God also comes down. We are not going anywhere. The Lord of heaven is going to descend. And our dwelling place, that's why it then says in verse 3, verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God, verse 4, let's, finally, let's finish it there. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no death. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. No hopeless grief again. For the old order of things have passed away and behold, the new one has come. Somebody shout hallelujah. This is the hope that we have. And you say, what joy is there? What joy is there? Is it not, isn't Jesus the center of attention? The joy is not being in the center of attention. The joy is being in connection with the one that is our center of attention. It is the joy that a bridesmaid and a groom have on the wedding day of their friend. That is, you see them really happy. They are not the center of attention, but they have worn their uniform. They are all happy. They are all dancing. In the same way, when we go and meet the Lord and we usher him to this world, oh, joy will fill our hearts. It will be like when John the Baptist, uh, his disciples came to meet him and said, ah, this Jesus is going in more popularity than you. He said, look, I am the bride, I am not the bridegroom. My joy is already complete because he must increase and I will decrease. Guys, this is our hope when the Lord returns. This is how we encourage ourselves. Amen? I want to finish with this because I still feel like somebody may say something. I get it. I get what you're saying. And it sounds true. But I'm not totally comforted. It sounds true. But I'm not totally comforted because I just wish somebody could listen to me. I see, this person that I lost, so, this person meant so much to me. And I'm trying to have a connection between what you are saying that sounds true, but how I'm feeling. I understand, I don't totally get. I don't want to presume that I understand the pain of losing a spouse, of losing a father, of losing a mother, of losing a friend. Some of us, it is not, it's recent, maybe within the last year. But for some of us, it is probably a decade and you refuse to deal with it, but you know the pain is there. So yes, it's true. 
But somehow there's still something missing. Can I tell you that Paul understands? He understands that just hearing the truth in a teaching or in a preaching is not enough. Paul understood that it requires more. Which is why in verse 18, he says this. Be encouraged by these words. Is that what Paul said? Is that what Paul said? Be encouraged by this word. Somebody has taught you. So just be encouraged. No, Paul says this, and I don't want you to miss it. He says, therefore, encourage what? One another with these words. Why? Because Paul understood that while apostolic teaching supplies the truth for the mind of the sufferer, it is communal encouragement that seals the truth in the heart of the sufferer. You see, guys, I'm giving you this truth, not because you just take it and it's, your, your Christian life is not just meant to be you and truth. The Bible says that the church is the pillar, is the church that is the pillar and the ground of truth. And that's why there's lots of commands that says, admonish one another. And here he's saying, encourage one another. If you're that kind of person here, can I encourage you? I've spoken with a lot of people in church, having to counsel some people who have dealt with what we call daddy wounds. Because their father left, their father died when they were young, and they're in their 30s or in their 20s, and they're still experiencing the pain because they didn't talk about it. Or their mom, or their spouse, or a sister, or a friend. Can I encourage you, if you are such a person, please don't close up. Can we demystify death? If there's one place death should be spoken about and it should not be, it should be demystified, is the church. Why? Because we have the solution to death. Our Savior has conquered death and our Savior will destroy death. So speak about it. We are here to encourage you with these words. This, um, November um, 3rd, 2013, I received a text from some of our good friends um, called Dango and Bumi Tobi. And when I saw that text, I was so overjoyed. Because Dango and Wumi were married in 2009. And for four years plus, they couldn't have any child. And so when I saw this text, this is what he read. We welcome our baby girl today with thanksgiving to our great God in whom we live, move, and have our being from grateful hearts. You see, some of you, why they were so full of joy? They called the girl Neraya, right? It's such a beautiful girl. You can even see her on the face now. Why was so overjoyed? Wumi was so special. Wumi was the first person that trained me in answering Q&A. You think you ask difficult questions. You should meet Wumi Tobi. She asked like, she has her questions mixed with dream, mixed with scripture. She was so, you know, she was so intriguing. She wanted to always learn. And then God was just such a, a, a nice going fellow, but we could see that pain of not having a child. So after four plus years, they now had a child. It was wonderful. I said, the, the name Neraya, I'm like, where, where do you, all these complicated names, where do you get it from? Actually, Neraya is in the Bible, right? Baruch, who was the scribe of Jeremiah, he was the son of Neraya. Beautiful name. So that was December, that was November 20, yeah, November 3rd, 3rd 2013. On December 29th, 
last year, right? So we had, if you guys remember, when we were trying to move here, between, uh, we came to arrange this place on the 28th and 30th. In between, on 29th, I got another text from them. You read this. Femi, Neraya has gone to be with Jesus. We just left the hospital. It's still very hard. I remember I was just like, I, was, I, was, I, I saw stars. I just saw stars. And so I called. I called and to my shame and to my embarrassment, honestly, I, I, I didn't plan this, but we just started crying. And honestly, I think I cried more than them on the phone. I called to comfort them, but I was crying, crying. I had to end it and just apologize that I was a miserable comforter. I mean, I've looked back at it. I said I was embarrassed, but you know, the Bible says that weep with those who weep. And then we had some calls subsequently after, two, three calls after, you know, the first time, yes, there was a lot of crying, but the second time, they were asking, we was asking questions again. They had encouragement, trying to understand, how do we get through and you know one of the scriptures we looked at? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. You did Philippians 1 as well, where Paul says that it is better for me to be with the Lord than to be here. We went through a number of scriptures. But as that was happening, I kept asking them a question. How about your church? How about your church? And they would say, oh, some of the people are here. Oh, some of the people cooked for us. Oh, they're checking on us. Oh, they're this and they're that. And so the church was there for them, and I was reading the scriptures, and some of the other friends from other places, I called Francis, who is also their friend, that you need to call them. And do you see what was happening? In my capacity as a member of the global church, I was there for them to give them the truth of God to encourage them. In their capacity as members of their local church, the local church was there to give them the truth of God, whether in words or whether in their presence. And can I tell you, because of that, those people are my heroes. They are so encouraged right now. It's not that they, are not, they don't cry about it. It's not that they don't think about it. But right now, they have moved on in a way that they are saying, how does the legacy of this girl, how is it going to impact other people's lives? Because they were encouraged. I even have proof that they were encouraged. Let me show you. Because I reached out to Yurumi and I said, I want to, I asked for permission to share this story, I'll share, you know, about Neraya. And here's what she said, because I wasn't sure she would allow, or they were allowed, they'll be comfortable. And they said, go ahead. So because our prayer is that God comes through your words to reach people deeply at different levels. And from your message, the church will begin to openly discuss death, both of children and adults, so that death becomes demystified and we wholeheartedly embrace the truth that we are only passing through this life to get home to what? To be with the Lord. 
Those are people who lost their seven-year-old just how many months ago. Why? Because the word of God with the people of God was there to be able to encourage them. What we were doing when, we were, when the church global and the church local was, uh, was going to them, you know what we were saying? We were encouraging with these words. We were saying, grieve and we will grieve with you. But do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Why? For we believe that because Jesus died and rose again, we also believe God will resurrect Neriah who has fallen asleep in him when Jesus comes again. And they were encouraged. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.